0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature.
1: It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
0: I'm trying to adjust my framing of success to being um, just very happy every single day when I wake up.
1: All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Lookup Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, and as always, I want to kick off this episode with a huge thank you. Thank you to all of you who have been listening from the beginning. Thank you to all of you who are tuning in for the first time. Thank you to my guests, both past guests and those of you that I've already agreed to interview in the future. And thank you to those of you who have contributed to this community uh, through my Patreon account, which I have a link to uh, in the show notes. We are in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. It's April 19th, 2020, as I'm recording this introduction. Uh, The conversation that I had with today's guest was recorded uh, in late February, before it was clear just how bad the COVID situation would get, although there was some semblance of fear at that time, which we mentioned in the episode. My guest today is Jeff Morris Jr., Jeff is the founder of Chapter One Ventures, which is an early-stage venture fund based in Los Angeles. Prior to starting Chapter One, Jeff was formerly the VP of Product and Revenue at Tinder. While at Tinder, he led the revenue team to the number one grossing app in the App Store and directed one of the top-grossing products in mobile history. He continues to be an active investor through Chapter One, investing in companies like Lyft, Superhuman, Roman, Branch Metrics, and most recently Lambda School, where he actually nearly joined to lead the product team. And Jeff and I speak about his decision after six months to drop his role at Lambda School and to pursue his passion of becoming a full-time venture investor. And although Jeff was formerly the VP of product at both at Tinder and Lambda School, and currently an early stage investor, we don't focus much on his experience building product or his investment framework. But instead, as I like to do on this show, we really hone in on the human element of starting a company and of being an investor or just an individual living in the modern world. Jeff's philosophy is to share himself openly with the public and he lacks a concern about stigma, which I think is great. And so we are able to dive deep on some really challenging issues. He shares the origins of the Tinder story and the impact that online dating has had on our relationships and mental health. And as I said, he's an open book. So we discuss his personal relationship with technology, his definition of work-life balance, his own experience with therapy both as an individual and relationship therapy with his wife. We also identify and try to hone in on a definition of luck and success. What does it mean to be successful? How does it feel to have others tell you that you're successful when you're still comparing yourself to peers who you believe to be more so? And of course, we chat about why he left Lambda School and really following your passion rather than uh, resting, investing, which you'll learn more about in this episode. I think this episode will be most helpful to those of you who are on an entrepreneurial path or to those of you who are currently making a decision about your next career move. Um, One of the negative effects of this coronavirus situation has been the 20 million plus Americans who are now out of jobs. And so if you're in that situation, I hope that this episode helps you to figure out what it is that you're going to do next. My thoughts and prayers are with everyone who is sick and healing, um, who has lost a loved one, or who is economically struggling. These are not easy times, uh, and I hope that we as a society come out of it stronger and better. So, once again, thank you for tuning in. Without further interruption from me, I bring you Jeff Morris Jr. So, Jeff, thanks for coming on the Look Up podcast. I really appreciate you joining.
0: Awesome. I'm so happy to be here and big fan of what you're what you're building with the podcast and yeah, long time coming. So happy to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've been trying to make this happen for a few months now, and I'm glad that we did. I uh, I heard you on Stuart Alsop's uh, Crazy Wisdom podcast, as I mentioned, and Stuart's awesome. And I really liked some of the subjects that you guys dove into, and I'm hoping to uh, to expand on some of those. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, there's so many places I want to go. I mean, you guys didn't really talk about your, your work at Tinder that much, and part of... Um, you know, part of the reason for starting this show was to identify and evaluate the impact that technology is having on our relationships, on our mental health, um, on our politics and society at large. And the show has kind of expanded to include really just philosophy and consciousness and startups, and you know, as many podcasts do. Just it starts to broaden out. But I just kind of wanted to start with Tinder because you were there for a number of years. Um, you ran product and revenue and you built some things there. So how, I guess, how do you feel your work at Tinder? Um, and specifically your work on Tinder gold has affected relationships in the 21st century?
0: Yeah, I think there's, um, probably a couple places to start. One, I think, um, just the origins of Tinder, Sean Rod, who's the CEO, um, he talks about this a lot. He started Tinder because he's actually a pretty shy person. Um, when he when he was single and going out to bars or clubs, um, he wasn't the type of person who could just walk up to any girl at the, the restaurant and just um, start talking to them. And so uh, I think for a lot of people, um, even myself, I'm not an introvert, but when I was dating, Tinder opened up uh, a whole new world to me just in terms of, of giving me access to um, just a broader group of people who I'd never actually have access to or meet. And I hear this all the time. It's um, like I would have never met this type of person without online dating. And you know, I think the, like the best book on this was actually Aziz Ansari wrote uh, a book called Modern Love, and he was talking mm-hmm. a lot about how you know in the 1930s or a long time ago in, in a place like New York City uh the majority of marriages actually happen from within a three block radius and so the world was just a lot smaller back then and so you didn't have uh the same level of diversity that we now have um with things like online dating and now you know i talk to friends who who meet people just all around the world um and so in terms of of finding the right person you're no longer limited to um, a three-block radius, which I think is really exciting, um, and then just on a on a cultural level, I think it's it's created a lot more um, optionality in terms of of people are now making their own decisions about when they when they want to get married, and there's a lot more I feel like openness to um, different relationship types, whether it's uh, waiting longer to get married or just um, uh, having a different belief system about who you want to marry. Um, the the gay community loves Tinder as an example because you think about small small cities, and I hear this a lot from people in in the Midwest. I think um, a lot of communities don't have um a gay bar that you can go to and 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 actually meet mm-hmm. someone who has your same um, sexual preferences, which we take for granted. Living in Los Angeles, I live in West Hollywood, which is yeah, um, you know, one of the most open, open-minded places in the world, but um, a lot of people don't have that same um, access within their communities. So, um, you know, for all the <clears throat> all the articles about how online dating is is uh, killing monogamy or whatever the, mm. the headlines might be, um, and, and you know, we see those headlines. There's there's a whole other world that's just so grateful for um, for products like Tinder that that exist.
1: Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I, I love that perspective. I have to admit, you know, coming into this, I wanted to, I, I had a bit of a bias, you know, and, and I still do. And so my bias is that, um, I believe that, you know, dating apps have created a little bit of perverse incentives, um, in, in that there's always the possibility of infinite choice and it's right. It's right there in front of you. And so you know, in game, in gamifying, um, human connection as well, so that people are coming back to the application and swiping, it, it kind of taps into that, um, you know, human desire to, to discuss, to, to strive for something better or something different. And I guess the question is, do you find that people are, are no longer settling um, you know, has the, has the infinite op is the infinite optionality, uh, that apps like it, Tinder offer actually better, uh, for mental health and happiness. And again, I come in this just open, just fully, you know, admitting my own bias here. Like I, I want to dig into these, these issues and I know that, you know, it's good that you have a, a positive perspective as well. And there's always both. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I would say the infinite optionality, um, kind of zeitgeist of the moment applies to um, many things outside of dating. Um, mm-hmm. If you look also at just like modern employment and uh, our views towards careers at this point, like the world has changed where people are always looking for the next best thing um, in in every part of your your life, and um, you know, I think I think as you mentioned, like the the possible downside of, of online dating is that you are always looking for, um, something else and you're always trying to kind of upgrade your, your partner. And, um, yeah. it's kind of it, like if you watch black mirror, there was a, a great, uh, dating episode where it touched on many of these topics, which is, um, you know, at some point, uh, like the algorithm becomes overly optimized and your um, you're, you're, like dating becomes too formulaic and um, it almost becomes a computer program in itself.
1: Yeah. I remember that episode. They kept going back to the same dinner, right? It was like the the same couple and over and over and over again, just these infinite string of them continuing to date.
0: Yeah. And, and the, and uh, you know, the big part of that episode was um, when you uh, match with somebody um, somewhere towards the beginning of your relationship, you actually are told how long you're going to stay together which you know it creates um, uh, a lot of sadness and awkwardness for people, and there's there's one couple who really does want to stay together, but um, they realize the computer algorithm actually uh, okay. doesn't have them uh, doesn't want them to be be together.
1: This is a good like segue like what what does Tinder's algorithm optimize for and other dating apps? Do they optimize for the best connection or do they optimize for um, people coming back. Um, I mean, our job and how we create happy
0: customers was always to optimize for the best connections. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people who, um, would ask me like, do you, do you make Tinder recommendations? And by the way, I did not work on the recommendations product, So yeah. I'm saying this, I'm saying you as in the company, um, do you make recommendations, um, just good enough so people stay interested in the product, but, but don't leave. Uh, meaning it's not the best possible matches. Um, and I can tell you from being on the inside for a long time, um, we are a lot of a lot of what the team is trying to do is is create the best possible matches, but create um, create matches as soon as possible, because the fact is, um if you're matching with people on Tinder and you're having conversations, like those are the product loops that keep people engaged with the platform. And um especially on the co- the conversations piece, if people are having conversations, they're coming back to Tinder often, and that um, you know for a product designer is very uh very favorable to to kind of what you're trying to accomplish so uh, um yeah there there's never a like I don't think um, we're we have uh i want to say that we're smart enough but but we don't have uh enough data to like create an algorithm that gives you matches that
1: are just good enough. So you go on like a couple of dates and then you come back. Will, will there, do you believe there'll be an algorithm that is that that could, could do that? I think, I think it could over time.
0: Um, You know, a lot of where our data did not capture what happened was after the match. So once you decide to go on a date with somebody, um, then you move to text message or something like that. And yeah. And, and you know, there was, there are some products and I, I know it was a conversation that, um, ask you how your date went and almost have like an Uber style rating system for, for your dates. And, um, you know, for us, like Tinder is supposed to be, um, and again, I speak, I speak kind of in the past tense cause I, I've, I I've been at Tinder yeah. for six months or seven months. Um, but Tinder was supposed to be very fun and light and, um, uh, it wasn't supposed to be a heavy dating product. And so we always thought like the more we reminded you that Tinder was a dating product, the less, um, kind of the less cool it would be. So we purposely tried to, um, and this was why, you know, at the time, and I, I think maybe there's things happening, um, currently that, that like we never want to do things like adding, um, a bunch of questions at the beginning of, of, of this, the setup experience, because we really, the beauty of Tinder was you created an account with Facebook and you were dating or you were swiping on people, I should say, within 15 seconds. Um, mm. and all the previous products had very long kind of like, uh, and you've seen this with products. Like yeah. Your, like, okay, Cupid
1: or something like that. You had to fill in this crazy form and you lose customers probably right up front.
0: You lose customers and um, at the time, like the market size for dating was a lot smaller because um, a lot of people didn't identify with being an online dater um, mm. and suddenly you, you created um, an application that felt felt more like a social um, app, a traditional social app that didn't have uh, all of the baggage that came with with the online dating category. Mm. And so and I think you're seeing this a lot just in, in other social products um you know every internet product you for the quote probably like eventually becomes a dating app in some way like yeah and so even like like my brother's he's 30 years old now and i have a brother in college and um they use all sorts of apps for dating that aren't uh that aren't dating apps you know instagrams instagram seems
1: to have really moved in that in that direction
0: yeah and, and instagram's never said we're a dating app. It just so happens that when you have, um, people creating content and you, you have.
1: About their glamorous lifestyle
0: (laughs) and then you add on the ability to direct message that person. Um, and you add a lot of location features, you know, it, it becomes, it becomes a dating app pretty quick, quickly. So, you know, I think there are, there are, I'm, I'm very um, aware of the mental health, um, uh, arguments towards, and really, it, it applies to to everything on your phone, not just dating apps. Um, and I have dug very deeply into this, and I think I think there does need to be um, a larger conversation around um, mental health in regards to digital addiction. But I, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't limit that conversation to dating. I would say yeah. um, across the board we're you know, there's an epidemic in the world right now, which is people are addicted to their their phones, and um, you notice it when you're when you're driving in your car
1: on the freeway. Um, you see people on their phones, and I mean, it's crazy. In in LA, I, I, has anyone done a study on the percentage of people that are using their phones while driving? It, it seems like it's it's closer to 100 percent than zero. Honestly, pretty wild. I, occasionally, I'll just like count
0: um if i'm if i'm like driving on um, wilshire and we keep yeah. the stoplights because it's not only when i think people um people avoid being on their phones when the car is moving but right when you're at a stoplight everyone just grabs their phone and, and it becomes um uh you know a minute of, of phone usage that um and and you see this all all the time in in real life you see it when people are walking on the street and, I don't know the right solution I do know i've I've tried to invest in digital addiction products that try and break digital mm. addiction and it seems like selling products to people who who like the first step of 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 solving i think is getting people to admit that they have an addiction which yeah. is and i don't think I just don't think there's a lot of um self awareness that we have. This problem on an individual level, even when Apple sends you the weekly summary that says you've been on your phone for <laughs> for 11 hours a day, <laughs> some weeks I, I'm on my phone for five hours, six hours a day, which okay. is, um, you know, pretty scary. But when you get that those messages, you kind of just move on with your life. And and um, I've actually looked at at um, there are digital addiction um, camps and and centers. Um, mm-hmm. One of them's in, in Washington and I've, I've thought about like, what if you just opened a bunch of digital addiction clinics um, throughout the city, but I don't think that people would want to even participate because I don't think people realize the extent of their
1: of their problem really. Yeah, and that's uh, definitely something I wanted to talk to you about, um, your deep dive on kind of mental health and digital wellness. Uh, on Stuart's podcast, you mentioned you spent six months doing that. I would I would also like to know just kind of well one did you meet your wife on Tinder <laughs> Um I did not we met actually um through
0: friends at a Will I Am concert in 2010 and then we were friends for you know five or six years and um that gave me a little bit of time to to uh explore single life and I was on Tinder and OkCupid okay and mm-hmm. Hinge and everything else but um yeah really like like we we uh ended up just just both being in the same wedding and we we shared a couple hundred mutual friends and so it made like everybody was cheering for us to uh to to work and and be a couple and and we <laughs> the old fashioned way- e- exactly yeah yeah
1: it's good to have both
0: yeah my my um uh, my sister met her husband on j date um which was, and this happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, I don't think they even told people that they met on J day. Cause there was like a stigma about having met online. Yeah. Now, and I now you see, um, like Tinder weddings and Tinder proposals where people, we had people come to our office, um, to propose to people they met on Tinder and like nothing shocks anybody anymore in the world. And, you know, people are just, Really open about about uh, every part of their lives, and there's there's no there's no stigma with online dating. I think forty percent of relationships in the U.S. start online now, Um, and that number just keeps going up every every single year.
1: Yeah, one thing I like, one positive argument that I heard in favor of online dating, and that resonated with me, was um, similar to kind of the, the founder of of Tinder. Most people go to watering holes or historically went to watering holes to meet partners. And it just seems like there, I think there was a scene in I love you, ma'am, which was like, if you, you know, you don't want to meet your wife at a club or something like that. Uh, (laughs) And so, you know, at least the dating apps offer an opportunity to, um, you know, to go do something together that you both find interesting, like go on a hike. One of the reasons I love Los Angeles or, you know, go, go to a book opening or a concert or whatever it might be. Um, but another another uh, and I agree that the addictive nature of technology applies to, you know, to platforms and apps beyond just dating apps. And I've had a number of guests on the show. So I had Nir Eyal, who wrote recently wrote the book Indistractable, uh, previously wrote Hooked, which was basically how to get people hooked on technology. I, how, did you read that book? I did. And that's
0: I think it's a book that most product people have read. So, yeah, um, I was actually thinking about this uh last night i don't know why but it's it's hard when you work in an industry where um your success is measured on things like um daily active users and weekly active users and I'm, I'm speaking just across the industry um or things like app opens yeah consumer tech consumer tech like when you're when you're in those walls building the product and those are you that's your scoreboard um that's at moments, you lose empathy for the fact that these are these are uh, real people on the other end that you're you're uh, trying to to design your product for, and um, you know designing your product in ways to get them hooked um, might not be what's best for for mm-hmm. their lives or for even for your application. Like, um, you know, I, I, I think I think there's ways probably to do. To win and not
1: uh, not get people addicted to your application. How can we how can we design you know as as a product minded person? How do you think that we can design technology that enhances uh, the human condition and minimizes externalities such as you know potential for addiction? The
0: the devices that I think and the applications that are I think doing. The most exciting work in this area are things like the Apple Watch. Um, and it's why, I, so when I dug into mental health, I became really excited about um, biometric data and, and all that, basically, the fact that you have um, a doctor on your, your wrist at all times um, and what conditions you can um, detect and, and um, diagnose through things like the Apple Watch. And the list is actually pretty deep, and so those are, um, you know, things like PTSD, um, depression, and insomnia. Um, these are all things that that either your watch or your AirPods can can one day detect. I I, I read a study about um, AirPods and voice detection, and there are patterns in your speech which um, which you can use to to identify PTSD. Um, and so that's kind of like the the happy, um, optimistic side of, of the world, which is there are products and platforms that are being built to um, to help uh, help improve our mental wellness, kind of across the board. The downside is, I think you know, consumer social will continue to exist, and um, the reality is, the metrics that that people care about um, are very often related to getting you to open your phone as many times as possible. And so um, I don't know the perfect way to solve this. I do know that um, Apple in particular is doing interesting work on the platform level to create things like um, time limits on an application basis for, um, for consumption. So I think that's, that's a pretty good starting point. I don't know that many people who have created those barriers for themselves. And so um, again, this goes back to like, do people actually want to, Change their habits. Um, and then and then on on kind of the product design level, like I think I think um, you know a large number of the distractions are when applications try and um, insert themselves into your life um, at moments when when you probably don't need that application to exist. So things like and I tell my friends and family like turning off your push notifications is a great is a great starting point. Um or only having push notifications that you ab- absolutely need. Uh, and there's there's so many different products that I feel like, um, even think- thinking of, of Facebook and um, or LinkedIn, every time you open those products, uh, you have a red dot which makes you feel like you're behind on something and you need to open up your inbox or you have notifications that have been waiting for you. And it creates this um, constant feeling that that you're missing out um and so being able to turn off those notifications and and frankly delete the apps that don't uh don't add value to your life i know a lot of people have deleted facebook from their phones and um they say they've never been happier it's it's i wish i could do that um as uh, a product designer like i feel the need to to like constantly. really know what's going on but um but i think i think there will be i think i think there will be more studies and more Um, More data that shows reducing uh, the amount of technology in your life is is better. I just I question whether people really will pay attention or care um, because people love their people love their applications and they love they love their phones and um, even seeing kids like the digital babysitter that is the iPad.
1: Um, it's wild. (laughs) I was, I was with my, uh, I was with my sister, um, and, and brother-in-law and my niece and nephew the other day. And, you know, like my nephew and I rarely get to see each other. Um, we went to a restaurant and, you know, the phone went on and he's, he's engaged for an hour and a half, but he's also well-behaved. Right. And it's like, you take it away from him and there's a lot of, he gets pretty ornery. I've seen this with other kids and, you know, I don't have children. So I've talked about this on the show before, how it's challenging to, to try to, you know, imagine what what it would be challenging for me to try to imagine what it would be like to have a child uh, with all with all of the temptation of just kind of putting them in front of the tech. You know, and some of the content that's out there is like watching other kids unbox presents. And so, you know, like one of his first words was present. And it's, it's kind of, it's super interesting to see how, um, how really habit-forming the tech is. And it, it can be used for, for um, beneficial purposes like education as well. If you can integrate certain bells and whistles into you know, educational content, and we see mass, you know, platforms like Masterclass, and you were just at, at Lambda School, um, you know, where technology is, is being used for the, for the benefit of enhancing people, at least uh, intellectually, I guess continuing on the personal thread, though, I wanted to ask kind of how you, how you manage your relationship to technology as someone that enjoys working in tech, investing in tech companies. You seem to be on Twitter often, um, and it's been and and Twitter has been extremely beneficial in your life. From what I can tell, I think you found your your first uh, tech job uh, on Twitter. So, one, you know, how do you manage your relationship to technology? To Um, enhance your life and your relationships and then two uh, how has technology impacted your life how has how have these you know social apps positively impacted your life
0: yeah so i think starting with the management part um i'll be completely honest and just say like i think i'm probably addicted to my my phone and yeah um uh, it's not something i'm proud of but if i'm just being like completely real um i I think I probably have, um, a bit of, of, of digital addiction. And so, um, I've done things to try and, to try and, um, help that. And one thing is I bought, um, I bought just like, a a, a box, a box with a lock. And every time yeah. I came home, I would lock my phone in, in this box and I wouldn't open it unless, um, unless I really needed to, to, to check something that lasted like a month. Right. you know, I've tried a bunch of, of like blocker apps on my phone, which prevent me from, um, um, doing or, or using certain applications throughout the day. And again, like those things just seem to last for a limited period of time. And I think this is why overcoming any addiction is probably so hard. It's just, you have, um, not to dramatize it, but you have relapses. And, um, so I, I don't think I'm, um, uh, uh, someone who can sit here and say, here's how you manage your, your life. And, um, and, you know, it's something I'm dealing with. And I think everybody, um, if they, if they really, really, you know, we're, we're being honest would would say, um, they're dealing with it too. And so, um, in terms of, of, of the things that, that are, um, or have been beneficial is, you know, I've stayed in touch with people in my life who, um, who I went to grad school with or who I grew up with and without technology, I just would never, would never have them in my life. And so I think for just maintaining my relationships, it's been amazing. Um, as you mentioned for, um, uh, my career, it's been amazing. I've done, um, made two jobs from, from Twitter effectively. One was my first job. Another one was, um, not so much a job, but when I joined Lambda schools because I, um, had met the the founder through Twitter and mm. that led to me doing my MBA thesis on the company and led to, to a job. And, um, I can't tell you the number of people I've met on Twitter that I grab lunch with and are suddenly like actually real friends. And so, uh, for me, my social life, a lot of it has, has benefited from Twitter, um, and then, just I think the the third part is um, the education that I I get online is amazing. I'm uh, I'm definitely someone who goes down rabbit holes. I think you and I both went down the the crypto rabbit hole, but
1: yeah, to that was just being. Uh, are you still engaged in that space at all, or how are you feeling about the industry?
0: Um, I'm still I'm still engaged on like I I have fourteen or fifteen companies I've invested in that I'm still actively supporting i haven't made the only crypto investment i did recently was a company called lolly.com oh yeah
1: they're like the honey but with bitcoin rewards
0: yeah it's a chrome extension where you earn bitcoin for your online purchases but that's like a very um i don't know if centralized is the right word but it's not it's not like a protocol that is promising to to change the world yeah and so I, i always looked and i still have looked for mostly um onboarding ramps that have really clear consumer benefits um and are less um kind of less futuristic in terms of uh like i, I didn't i haven't invested in any um in any like decentralized um i haven't done any any any, any governance um i've done a little defi so i did compound finance um, I did Blockfolio so like these are like just like real applications that um, mostly
1: help people make money and so I think yeah <laughs> yeah have you um have you been on any of the crypto podcasts like with uh Tom Shaughnessy or or David Nage or Jason Choi or any of those guys I haven't and I'm not sure like
0: I don't know how they'd feel about what I'm saying um and yeah I've always found like, like um, I'm so happy that there's um, kind of like people who are crypto idealists in the world. I just don't happen to be one of them. I kind of think of it more like how can we get people to use this um, in the, the context of their, their daily lives?
1: Well, one of the biggest challenges for me working in that space, and I don't even know if any of my listeners know that I'm in that space or there's a, there's probably little overlap between my world I mean I spent the last 3 years in crypto, right? And I came into it from the from the framework of having studied economics and seeing, you know, what what was happening at a macro level with governments printing money. And yesterday was a prime example of that. I mean, we're we're in the midst of this coronavirus scare and the US Fed cut rates another 50 basis points and it seems like all in all in a desire to continue markets market prices to be propped up at you know, seemingly artificially high prices. I think the stock market's trading at like a 30 times price to earnings multiple or, or was before this latest scare. And so for me, I came at it from like, you know, the, a complete monetary standpoint of Bitcoin is non-sovereign gold and, or, you know, non-sovereign digital currency, uh, store value, whatever you want to call it. And then I got deep in, so deep sucked into the rabbit hole, as you said. and. I, I'm kind of slowly coming out the other side, just a little bit fed up with the lack of product market fit, the lack the lack of user adoption. I think it's just we're so early, even DeFi, which is stand, for listeners stands for decentralized finance, um, which is like a really big investable theme in the space right now. It seems every fund in that industry is currently investing in it. It's mostly by developers for developers, kind of tinkerers. And it feels a lot like an Ouroboros where it's you know uh, a lot of existing investment capital from crypto getting cycled back in. Uh, I want to pivot away from crypto though. Cause that's why I asked, there's so many, there's so many crypto podcasts you can go on and there's so many talking heads in that space. And that's one of the reasons why I'm just like, Oh, I just like the academic, you know, back and forth, um, without much delivery has just really frustrated me over time. Um, I I wanted to uh, there was there was a thread that you mentioned earlier that I I wanted to pull out a little bit. Um, you know, one I, I really appreciate you sharing openly about your own kind of challenges with with um, you know you, using using technology kind of in a way that maybe affects your your personal life. But you mentioned on Stewart's show, you said that um, you you know you get great joy out of the work that you do. And a lot of the work that you do is, is based on meeting people online and finding companies and whatnot. So I was curious what your take is on, on work-life balance. It's this kind of buzzword that's come up. And, um, I, I personally don't know exactly how I feel about it because I also love working. I get great satisfaction out of it. So what's your thought on, on this concept of work-life balance?
0: Yeah, it's, um, It's something I struggle with a lot because I think when you love, actually love what you do, um, you're, it's always kind of in the back of your mind. And, uh, for me, like, it could be a Sunday morning brunch with my family. And, um, in the back of my mind, maybe I am thinking about something at work and that's just being human. And so I don't think there's this binary on off switch where, um, maybe as there was in the past where you have your work life and your home life, um, they just all kind of blend together at this point for me. And it's especially hard cause you see, you know, a lot of the people who, who become, uh, the best of their profession, um, are obsessed with their craft. And so even just thinking of, of Kobe Bryant and all of the, um, tributes to him was, yes, he was. Uh, a great a great family man after his career was over but when he was in his career he was obsessed with basketball and so mm. um, for me like I want to be one of the best investors in venture capital one day and to do that um, involves um, a certain level of focus that um, doesn't always lend itself to you know the perfect work-life balance. That said um, I think one of the benefits of, of being married, at least for me, is that, um, I do have somebody who, uh, keeps my, my life, uh, a little bit more balanced. So, um, my wife for me is the one who, um, who really is a social person in our household and she makes sure that I'm not always working. But if I was, um, single, I think maybe I would, uh, be a little bit more, um, just singular focus on,
1: on a work. Um, uh, I do think. And, and that's, that's interesting to me just to say, well, one, I'd be curious to know <laughs> how that manifests in your relationship and how, um, you know, how you guys kind of cope with, with that. Uh, it's something that I struggle with in my relationship, kind of the context switch of turning off, uh, um, especially, you know, I haven't, achieve the level of success that I would like to in my life, you know, um, on that, in that bucket of my life. And I guess, you know, you've already, you've already had so much success in your career with first with Tinder. Um, and, and actually not for a second with Tinder, you know, what is the game for you at this point? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Like people tell
0: tell me or um, when people tell you you've been successful, like my benchmark for success. And um, I think it's just the world we live in, especially I grew up in um, the Bay area and you, you're around hyper successful people all day and you're constantly comparing your success to their (laughs) success. So you never feel, you never feel like you're successful, which probably isn't healthy. Um, But it's like, the truth is, is like, you're, you're always feeling like, like you have something else to, to prove. And even, even after tender, um, like I, even now, like, I don't feel like I'm like hyper successful
1: in my life. And so, so how do you define success for yourself? And is, is success all relative?
0: I, I I think it is relative. I mean, for me, like, I'm trying to adjust my framing of success to being, um, just very happy every single day when I wake up. And so it was one of the, the reasons why I chose to focus on investing and, um, leave Lambda school recently was just, I found my happiness, my personal happiness was, um, coming from building my own, uh, company and, and, and really being an entrepreneur in terms of, of my fun. Um, and it wasn't <clears throat> I was going down this this career path of trying to to be what everybody else wanted me to be, which was a a VP of product and a CPO and like the product person on Twitter. And I just realized like that's actually not what I want to do. And when did you realize that? And how did it how did it come about? It was um it was a series of, of things, but part of it was um in in trying to kind of like climb up the corporate ladder as i was moving up the ladder and um, starting to meet people who were kind of at the top of the profession um, i didn't see a lot of happiness within their lives and so i also saw how um, how unpredictable their lives were in terms of of you know, if you're a, a chief product officer at a consumer tech company and um, and a product release doesn't go well or there's a new CEO or whatever it might be, um, you have very little control over your the mm. outcome of your, your career. And a lot of times you simply get replaced. And I think you see this a lot with CMOs, any C-level executive. There's just a lot of... Um, um, a lot of instability, mm, a lot of churn, yeah, a lot of churn, and and I just I I personally wanted to be in a position in my career, my life where um, I didn't have to deal with that because I felt like I was at a place where I could I could actually build my own my own thing. We live in a world where it's really easy to to release products and start start something. So if you have um, the financial Ability to do so, and you you can do it. Like, why not?
1: Yeah, I um, I definitely had. I I wanted to touch on this a little bit more, and I, uh, you know, you you are very active on Twitter. You know, I follow you. Uh, I I follow some of the some of your thinking. Um, you know, you've been extremely bullish on Lambda School. Uh, as you said, you did your your master's thesis on it, and for listeners. Uh, Lambda School is a unique education platform for individuals who want to become coders, engineers essentially, to switch careers. And you apply uh, and you don't pay any tuition and you learn it. You learn computer science or engineering, I think. Is, Is that accurate? And and the only way Lambda School makes money is if they land you a job, and they get a percentage of whatever income you earn. It's called an income sharing agreement, or an ISA. And so you were, you know, this is a, a new paradigm for for learning. You were super bullish on it. And it, how many months did you end up staying at, at Lambda? I was there about about a
0: half a year. So I had worked in total with the company through my uh, thesis for about a year, and I'm I'm also an investor in the company, so. Um, you know, really still kind of a part of the, the org, but I, it was a quick, there's no, uh, no showing away from the
1: fact that like, it was a pretty quick. Well, that's, that's what I wanted to talk about because I'm actually, you know, I, I saw you getting some, some flack online about that and you were, you know, being not necessarily defensive, but in response saying, there's nothing wrong with the company. This is just me realizing and focusing on what actually makes me happy, which is investing in finding companies and I thought that was really, um, I thought that was brave for a few reasons. And I would love to hear your thoughts on these. One is there seems to be this uh, this tendency amongst um, people in the working world, and specifically in, in the Valley or tech startups, to to finish out the year, you know, to get a year at least, to get two years, whatever, and then that checks the box of I was there long enough for it to matter my reputation. And I think there's a hesitancy for people to change their minds. And so I wanted to, you know, you said it, you started realizing you what made you happy, but how were you able to create the space for yourself to change your mind about something that is seemingly such a important, you know, decision? And I imagine there's so much ego tied up in not changing your mind. <laughs> I mean, for me, I just... I talked to a lot of people who I loved and
0: trusted and every single person I talked to, um, thought it was a, a, a great idea for me. And, um, beyond that, I also just kind of realized that I don't care about, uh, uh, about like what other people think in terms of, of, um, what the right career decisions are for me, because the reality is most people are, so caught up in their own lives and their own their own careers that um yeah maybe maybe you leave and it it surprises them for a tweet or a couple minutes of their life but then they're they're on to the next thing and for me to delay my life and what i want to do for six months to please people on twitter or, or recruiters or whoever it might be just seemed like a waste of my time and so you know, I I think six months is a very long time in your career, especially in the world we live in now. And so to to delay anything in your life to please other people just to me doesn't seem like, like the best use of your time. Um, a lot of people do hit the one year mark at tech companies because that's when you vest um, and most vesting schedules require you to hit a year. For me, I thought it was unfair to the company to, to sit there for six months um, just so I could hit that date when they could be yeah. building a team of of people who were really passionate and, and dedicated to that given role. And so I thought it was actually it would have been pretty selfish of me to sit there and, and just that. And so, yeah, I think I think again this goes back to like the beginning of the podcast which is um, we live in a world that has a lot of optionality and um, people can make career decisions faster than than they could in the past and um, this idea and by the way i've I've, I've worked at companies um, the past two companies I've worked at one was for four and a half years the another one was for over three years so um, I don't advocate job hopping but if you know that you um, want to be doing something else with your life and you have the financial flexibility to to do that, then why not make those hard decisions as quickly as possible and and um, why you know I think you have to ask yourself why do you care about what other people think about you and um, if it's your ego then um, um, the best thing you can do is 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 acknowledge that your egos really getting, getting in the way of your personal happiness. And so you should be making decisions with your heart and not with your, with your ego. And that's, that's what I did.
1: Yeah. I want to, you mentioned a couple of things at the end there. So one of them is if you have the financial means, so how important do you think it was for your decision to know that you're, you know, you're going to be financially fine, also including the equity vesting? I actually did the same thing in my last job, Um, I had a one-year cliff and I left before my equity vested. And I had a conversation with a friend because I was going back and forth uh, between my mind and my heart, actually. And I was defining the problem in that way. And I was like, well, my mind's telling me you're a principal at a venture fund, you have a great job, you're deploying capital um you know, in theory on paper it looks great you're building out a network you're getting a good salary benefits you have equity coming your way um, my heart was telling me this isn't the right team for me to be doing this sort of work with even if I find the work to be interesting and even if I know that it will be really challenging for me to find that same type of role elsewhere because my background is unconventional um and I was speaking to a friend about it the night before I decided to leave actually and he's like, well I'm like I I was like, I might as well just wait for my equity to vest because that's the smart thing to do, you know? And that's the, that's probably the right thing to do. And, and he's just like, you know, how would the rest of your team feel about that? You know, when you leave the day after and regardless of if you like them or care about their feelings, you know, is that the type of person that you want to be? That is just waiting around for your equity to vest and then bouncing. I was like, you know what? I mean, I was like four months away and I was like, you know what? You're right. And the next day I just was like, this is what I want. And I pulled the trigger on leaving. Um. So, so I feel that. And I think it's, it's awesome that you did that. Not, to, you know, I, I I'll go back to the question because there was a question in that. How important do you think it was that you were financially um, fine, you know, to give up that equity and, and also to, to switch?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, being just completely real again, like it was important for me to, I had, I had a nice outcome at Tinder and that gave me a lot of flexibility in life to, and by the way, I also walked away from, um, a lot of, a lot of equity at Tinder that I was still going to earn. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, like there's a point in life where you just have to do what's best for you and you have to you have to play the long game and you have to have enough belief in yourself that, um, that whatever, whatever is coming in four months or six months isn't going to be what defines your life, both financially and, and, um, in terms of your, really your, your legacy. And so I, I have a, a much bigger vision for my career than, um, than hitting a certain investing date. Um, even if it means giving up a certain amount of money, I I just don't think when I'm 70 years old, 80, 80 years old, like I'll have any regrets about that. Mm And, um, you know, I kind of think that, that if you like, there's, there's, there's multiple versions of this. Like if you're the first 10 employees at Uber and you're, you know, you have a family and you have, you've only been there for, a couple years maybe you do stay and maybe maybe there's reasons um to do that and and it's hard because you're on the rocket ship and um those things for a lot of people just come once in your entire career but you know i I just kind of think there's more to life than than uh than playing kind of the vesting game and yeah i've i've seen a lot of people waste a lot of their best years of their careers
1: just they call it rusting investing as I'm sure you've heard. <laughs> well, it's so funny. it's uh, the dude in Silicon Valley who like gets to sit up on the roof while he vests his Hooli equity. I'm blanking out his name, but uh, it's just such a hilarious character. They're like, we don't have a role for you here, but
0: <laughs> it's hilarious and as hilarious as that character is, like that's that's what that's happens at, at a lot of tech companies. and um, you know, I think I think it's just again, like it's no judgment. Some people, view work as being, um, uh, a way to provide for their, their family and to have financial stability and that's all awesome and, and, real. And, um, but like, if you have, if you have financial flexibility and you already, you already have the means to do that, then like, what's the point in trying to always optimize for like getting more? And, and there's mm-hmm. gotta be a moment in life where you just say, um, I actually want to do what makes me happy and pursue my, you know, my ambitions rather than, than kind of being, have have my life being defined by, by other people or vesting or dates.
1: You know, in that regard as well, like you, you connected to Lambda School, you know, you, you had met a company and this, uh, I'll link to Stuart's podcast. Cause I think you, you tell this story, but you met your first company on Twitter and you basically DM them, and they told you to come to Kansas City uh, immediately that day, which is hilarious, and you did, right? Yeah. And you didn't even know whether it was Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas City, Kansas, which is awesome. I was such an idiot, but... Uh... No, not at all. I mean, uh, you know, I think I only learned that like this past year. <laughs> um, well, one thing that I, I thought was cool uh, on Stuart's show was, you know, your the way that you thought about luck. I'm curious if you could share with the listeners, you know, what your what your view on luck is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think
1: so much of life is is
0: based on serendipity and and kind of putting yourself in the right position to um, to be lucky. And so, uh, a lot of what I've done in my career is just, especially on Twitter, is is tried to live a really transparent, open life. Um, I found that people are attracted to that and um, the more you open up about what's going on in in your mind or your personal life the more people will uh, reach out to you and want to meet you and so you know a big part of 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 being lucky is just putting yourself in in the right rooms and the right conversations to uh, have that luck and so for me um, going back to my first job in tech like I flew to South by Southwest. Um, I slept on my friend's couch and I just I didn't have tickets to anything. I didn't have any access, but I just went out and just started meeting people and um that's where I met the company I mentioned um on the podcast, which was a company called Zarly, who offered me a job two days after the the event. Um mm. and so so much of luck is just putting I believe putting yourself out there and putting yourself in the right situations to uh to be lucky and so um there's there's kind of a uh a framework in in venture capital which is like to be successful you have to a see the right companies um and then you have to pick the right companies um which isn't super complicated but um if you're if you're not seeing the right opportunities because you're not putting yourself in the right Rooms or you're not uh, being proactive about your career. There's no way you can pick the right things because um, you know you're just not going to have visibility into into what's going on in the world. So um, even even for you know for a company like Lambda School, like being an investor just helped me see um, see thousands of companies and enabled me to to pick the one company that I wanted to to work for. Um so yeah for me luck is is um it's not sitting sitting at home and waiting for luck to happen it's being um really aggressive and really proactive to to be lucky um but also knowing that when when you're successful there is such a big element of luck um mm-hmm. and you know like the tinder story for me was um one of my brother's friends who he went to college with knew had, had seen me online and sent my brother a text message asking if he could talk to me. And so like, if you just want to like think about what was lucky there, it was my brother met this person in college. Uh, the person saw me online the person texted my brother and then I connected with that person. But like, if any, one of those events didn't happen, I wouldn't be living in Los Angeles talking to you on this podcast. And so, um, there's so much luck that happens. I think the people who get in trouble in their careers and and kind of get um, ahead of themselves are the people who don't stop to actually acknowledge that luck or or string together the events that created that luck for them. Mm-hmm. And it's the people who actually think they're everything happened because they're smart or they're hardworking or whatever else it might be because um, because there is so much luck, but you have to, you actually have to stop and, and, and recognize that part of it too.
1: I think that, I think that it's like, okay to, to value and recognize your self-worth and it is a slippery slope of like, you know, balancing humility with, with confidence and ego. Um, I think gratitude is really the bridge, right. To be grateful for those, those serendipities, those little moments in life that happen. that, I mean, even just being here, we're like one of the recent guests that I had on this show was saying, you know, we're we're on this blue orb you know getting hurled through space and time by a giant flaming ball in the middle of in the middle of nothingness and for all of the, the the little even atomic interactions that had to happen every single moment leading up to now for us to be having this conversation it's you can't i mean humans are incapable of of grokking that truly and so gratitude kind of bridges that gap between saying okay like yeah, I'm confident and I'm smart and I'm hardworking. There are so many people out there that are confident, smart, hardworking, you know, assertive, put themselves in positions to get lucky and it doesn't work out for us. So I think gratitude is the bridge. And what's crazy is on the flip side of that, you know, you referenced, well, I'm not, you know, I I don't see myself as successful. And, you know, I too struggle with with that. You know, I, I went to Wharton, like I'm 32 years old. I intentionally left the the road of private equity and hedge funds and all that because it didn't interest me. And I have friends that are in it that are just crushing it, you know, and they're super happy financially, certainly. And sometimes I, I find myself comparing myself to them and, uh, and I guess the point, and others that have started companies and have been really successful. And it's like, I, it's funny. It's like, is it easier to, identify and appreciate luck when it served you than it is when it serves someone else. In other words, like, I understand the importance of luck and how, you know, one investment can make a fund, for example, or one job can make your career and you might have landed there because your brother's friend, you know, reached out to you and yet still objectifying the other by putting them on a pedestal, like the Naval worship on Twitter as an example. Who's someone that I have massive respect for, um, and who I probably fall into that category of like, oh, this guy's incredible, um, but we're all just human. It's not really a question so much as just noticing the nuance of, of you know, how we can identify and appreciate that luck plays a role, but then sometimes get swept away in in worshiping you know other quote unquote successful people
0: yeah I think I think um, a lot of the, the successful people you talk to um, when you meet them you realize how human they really are mm-hmm. and when you talk to them about their careers you realize uh, there were these little moments where things could have gone in either direction and um, you know the people i I I admire the most are are well aware of the, the fact that luck plays a huge part in, in their success that said like they're not um they're not s- sitting waiting for luck to happen like they're they are really passionate about their craft um one thing I notice about the people I admire the most is is they're very pragmatic and just very consistent with with uh their outfit and what they do who do you admire the most um I admire a lot of people but I admire professionally actually my uh, my grandfather the most who mm. um, was a, a CEO for a long time and started a company when he was when he had literally zero money um, that he he uh, took he took that company public and so he he's still alive he's but he went to the office every day till he was ninety five <laughs> and um, <laughs> wow he reads a couple newspapers every morning he and he's been doing this the same thing. Uh, really throughout his entire life, and so um, you know, I think luck luck was definitely a huge part of his story. But um, doing the work and being cons- consistent was also a huge takeaway for me. So um, yeah, I, I try I, I try to as much as I can just stay heads down, and and I find that like the more I focus on just the day to day work. And I think this is the part of gratitude. It's, it's like having gratitude on a daily basis or an hourly basis for everything you're able to do in your life, which is, um, you know, we're able to to pursue and do pretty cool things relative to, to a lot of people in the world. We're sitting in California, you yeah. know, trying to build technology products or media companies and, um, how cool is that? And so uh, just being really grateful for that fact and not being uh but not being, I guess, like you said, like like being humble, but not being um not being kind of I don't know what I'm trying to say, but but trying to be uh trying to be level headed, I guess is what I'm trying to say about about everything is is uh how I approach things.
1: Yeah, I think it's, that's what, it is hard to figure out, right? Like that, because it's a balance. It's balancing both the, the, um, the drive and adrenaline and competitiveness that propels you forward and puts you in places for that opportunity to come. And then also the humility and gratitude and, you know, thoughtfulness that balances that, I think, um, a couple more, a couple more questions for me, uh, one is, um, you mentioned on Stuart's show that, uh, you know, how important therapy has been in your life and, you know, this, this show touches on mental health all, often, what kind of therapy, um, have you experienced and, you know, what impact has it had on, on your life? Yeah.
0: So I, um, I first went to a therapist when I was 19. Um, okay. I was getting out of a breakup with my girlfriend who had dated for two years and I was, basically living, um, not alone because I had friends, but I was living in Los Angeles for the first time. And um, I remember how scared I was to tell my parents that I I thought I needed to to see a therapist. Uh, And I remember how scared I was to tell my friends that I'd been a a therapist. It felt like it was an acknowledgement of...
1: um, Being crazy or having issues or...
0: Yeah. And, um, so that was, and it really changed my life. I did therapy for probably, it wasn't super long, maybe it was six months at the time. Um, but it really just talking to, to somebody, um, uh, really helped me. And then, you know, 24 went through another breakup, went to a therapist. Like it's always around like these like, um, big events, which I don't think is the right way to do therapy. I think um, doing therapy on a, as if you're, you know, they talk about mental fitness, like going to the gym more consistently is probably the better approach. And then, um, my wife and I, we've been really open about it. Went to couples therapy before we got married because we, we didn't know how to, um, not get really, um, angry at each other when we, when we'd have fights. Um, and we found that that our communication during those moments was uh, just not where we wanted to be as, as a couple who was about to get married and we went to therapy and now we, um, you know, every, every couple has their moments, but we're able to like figure out that like things are going to be okay. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: And so even when we told our, we told a lot of our friends that we were going to therapy before we got married and people were like, if you're already going to therapy, then why are you getting married?
1: Yeah, I just fundamentally disagree with that mentality. I think that we all, I just had um, the founder of a company called Relish uh, on the show. She was actually a co-founder of FanDuel. Relish is like a relationship coach in your pocket. Um, I think that we always can improve. And there's this huge trend now in the Valley, at least on self-work where meditation has become productized essentially. And and that's cool. I mean, I think people can self-improve, but like the best tool that I've had in my life for self-growth has been relationship because it's a mirror. And so doing that kind of self-work, but she called it us work, which I really loved um, in a relationship, I think is so important because you can always get better. There's always an opportunity to communicate better, to find your blind spots, to see, to excavate the, the, you know, the rough stuff that comes up. So I just, fundamentally disagree with your friends on that one. And I'm, I'm glad that you did too. Funny part was a lot of those friends um are divorced. <laughs>
0: they, they end up a lot of them ask ask us for uh our you know introductions to our therapists. And just like there's so much there's so many things in the world that were stigmatized that um our generation and younger generations are just saying like this isn't that big of a deal. Like going to a therapist should be normalized and um, I think a lot of the labeling's changing so you have life coaches or you know you have people talk about going to life coaches I've been to life coaches and it's pretty similar to to therapy you don't go quite as much into your past but um, you're talking through a lot of your your drama and so it's not that I'm sure there's people who are who are much uh, much better versed in this but To me, it hasn't felt much different than therapy. And so, um, yeah, I'm just grateful we live in a world now where A, there's a lot more um, tools to get help. I I did, um, when I was doing my deep dive, I found I think half the zip codes in America still don't have a single uh, therapist who who runs a business in their zip code. But you have, now you have, teletherapy and, and online tools to to help these people who are underserved in terms of access to to help which I think is really cool um and just the conversations change like it's cool to take care of yourself now it's cool to to tell your friends at sunday brunch that you you found a great therapist or you you had a great a great conversation with your therapist like these are all things that make you more progressive and um and I feel like these are the things that Um, people are are becoming a lot more comfortable with, uh, in in just everyday conversations. I, I, I feel like, like we're able to talk about literally everything now and there's very little judgment, which is, is pretty cool.
1: I agree. I think, you know, I think it's great that people are trying to be a bit more self-aware. You know, I think we could definitely use that, uh, just, uh, culturally it's, it's nice to see that shift uh so you're starting a podcast yeah i'm i'm thinking about
0: it i like my one hesitation is uh, there's
1: there's so many podcasts so many
0: and so it's like how do you create um just something different because if it's not wildly different like why are you doing it in the first place and so i'm trying to Mm -hmm. figure out what what that might be for me and I, i have some ideas but um but i'm still kind of uh still kind of like like figuring out what, what my position might be.
1: Yeah. I I had a shift recently. Um, You know, like I've thought about different formats and things like that. And um, the what and the how is definitely are definitely two important questions to ask. And it is super crowded. It's the same thing. Like crypto newsletters are super crowded and there's, there's so much content out there to create. Uh, What shifted for me was I had a conversation with a guy named Andrew Horn um, who leads men's groups and he was talking about how to be of service. And I literally am just like, I do this show to be of service to anyone that listens. And the people that come on are interesting to me and have insights that are important to share and for people to hear. And whether there's one person listening or 200 or or 10,000, you know, it's important work and it satisfies me. And I get to connect with really incredible people like you through this work. So that's, that's my why my why is I get to serve others through connecting with incredible people. Uh, and like, there's no greater joy for me than recording one of these episodes. So I, you might not have it yet, but I think it's, it would be cool to understand why, you know, why you want to start a show, um, and what you want to share with individuals.
0: Yeah. I love, um, what I've liked about this conversation and, um, just the, Uh, the level of honesty and um, I think for everything I do whether it's on Twitter or on anything I write like just being radically honest with people um, Mm. is what I find draws people into to what I do and so like the last thing I would want to do is do like a podcast where you interview a venture capitalist and talk about why why they invested in a certain company or, um, kind of like, I don't know. I feel like the, the invest inter- like the best. I, yeah, I'd like invest like the best. I think that's me too. Uh, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of podcasts that just, um, kind of exist to put people on pedestals. And, um, to me, like that content's not super interesting. I do like, um, there's a couple, like I like, there's a, one called venture stories that Eric Tornberg runs and, I like I like that just because they totally nerd out about a single topic for like an hour and it's kind of like um, listening to a, a conversation um, between two really smart people at uh, at lunch. You just kind of get to be a fly on the wall. So I think yeah. those are interesting. I've also thought about um, like things that are kind of like semi-scripted where it's, um, did you ever listen to the first, Startup, uh, the Gimlet Startup Podcast. No, it was like uh, them going around talking about what it was like to build a company. But they would record like conversations that were very personal. Um, so it's like co-founders talking about how they're going to split equity, um, and it's there's a microphone in the room, so it's like radical transparency about um, these really critical moments um, for them starting a company. So I think I think there's like there's one. Play on podcasts is just is just like giving people um, access that that they've never had before, which I think is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and you have an incredible network of individuals that you could access and offer to, you know, to folks as well.
0: Yeah, so I'm still still figuring it out, but I think podcasts are such a uh, interesting format because I think to your point about about kind of like consumer habits. It allows people to, um, kind of multitask. So mm. it's not, um, you know, I'll probably listen to this while I'm at the gym or in my car or, or cooking, cooking or walking my dog. Whereas, um, and that feels additive to me where something that forces you to stare at your phone all day maybe isn't, isn't quite, um, quite as additive or it, you know, it, it doesn't let you, it doesn't complement your, your healthy activities.
1: Yeah. and I, I mean, I thought about different formats and things, you know, like some people don't like to listen for an hour and 20 minutes, which is how long we've gone right now. And what if I just did, you know, sound bites or 15 minute episode with rapid fire questions or 20. And, you know, for me, it's, it's often about the connection with the guest. And so what I find is like, sometimes short episodes are great. Sometimes we go 30, 40 minutes. And it's like, that's, that was enough. But oftentimes the best stuff happens right in the middle. And it takes just a little bit of warming up. I've thought about, oh, what if I just started with like a, you know, just start with a question. In this episode, for example, I was like I decided up front that I didn't want to ask you to give me your background because sometimes it gets a little bit, you know, it gets a little bit draggy and it's like I, I do, there are important points I want to hit upon. So, anyways, it's, you know, this is the like I said like the 35th or 6th episode that I've recorded. I'm constantly learning. Um, it's really fun. I highly recommend it. I think everyone should start a podcast if only to to just you know, have great conversations and really focused, intentional conversations present with guests. Um, but yeah, I, you know, this has been great, Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I know that you're a busy guy, so I appreciate you giving me and the listeners, you know, an hour and a half. Um, I will, I will link out to, you know, your website, your Twitter account. Is there anything else that you want to say to the listeners before you bounce? No, just feel free to,
0: to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm, at jamj so it's pretty easy to to find me and um yeah hopefully uh hopefully this was helpful and uh additive to your to your life so thank you for having me respect
1: All right. Hello, Look Up listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly Newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, For those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.